Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, August 4th. We begin with a look at a very busy time south of the border, from rising COVID-19 numbers to a powerful tropical storm battering the East Coast. We get the latest from Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Next, we look at a new way to deliver school curriculum, pandemic pods. We learn about the new concept from a sociologist who explains the difference between these pods and traditional homeschooling. Last weekend marked the arrival of mandatory masks in our city for all public spaces and transportation. We get an update from a City of Calgary Community Standards Specialist on how the change was adopted by Calgarians. And finally, we've all heard that sugar makes children hyperactive, but is it science or an old mother's tale? Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician, gives us details on a new study that tackles the topic. Coming up to 6.09 on the morning news. Another weekend has come and gone and COVID-19 numbers continue to rise in the USA. The U.S. is on pace to move past the 160,000 death mark later this week. And we'll get to that in a second. But the matter at hand is the hurricane, which is now a tropical storm, which has a hard name to say, but I'll try it. We're joined now by Global's uh, Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini. It was called Hurricane Isaias. You You give it a shot, Reggie. Isaias. One more time. Isaias. Isaias. Okay. Spanish, I believe. And it now is a tropical storm. So tell us about the situation if it's uh, coming toward your region, because I know that it's, it's a huge path when it comes to this tropical storm. Yeah, this storm really has kind of been on a path for the last 24 hours or so, barreling up the U.S. East Coast. Within the last hour or so, it started to enter the vicinity of the Washington, D.C. metro area and along the Maryland and Virginia coast uh, uh, out towards the beaches on the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, We are now starting to see the onslaught of the heavy rains through the area. We're starting to see the wind blow up as well. It it still technically is a tropical storm, and those winds are in and around, you know, 70-ish miles an hour. So this is going to be an active threat. Uh, through the D.C. area at least for the next four or five hours. Uh, There have been a couple of reported deaths from this storm so far, and it really has kind of been uh, uh, the first real test for emergency responders uh, as they deal with both a tropical storm and the coronavirus outbreak simultaneously. Kind of the double whammy, and I would think that not just, you know, when you talk about the people, but the businesses that have tried to reopen probably shuttering doors right now and uh, battening down the hatches, so to speak. Yeah, this has been something that uh, they had some warning, uh, uh, previous warning to try and get themselves ready for. But in areas of New York, we've already seen uh, that there are businesses that are fearing what's going to happen, even if they have to shut down just for a two or three day period and then have to deal with any of the onslaught of any kind of uh, of storm surge that comes in and potentially uh, puts flooding into their businesses and keeps them closed longer. This is an area in the country that's already reeling from the effects of coronavirus and from those lengthy shutdowns and are already facing additional risk of shutdown solely because the numbers Numbers are growing so rapidly around parts of the country. This really is just kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, an additional bruise on an already battered part of the nation. Certainly not good news. We'll keep our eye on that. Let's uh, switch gears and talk COVID-19. And depending on what numbers you look at, it looks like between 155,000 to 158,000 deaths at this point. But for certain, going to cross that 160,000 death mark later this week. What's the latest and what are some of the hot spots? Do they remain the same or are they changing? 
Well, look, it depends on how you're looking at certain maps. You know, there are certain networks that will show a map that says that 27 or 30 of the states are steady right now and only seven or eight are actually seeing an increase in cases. But it's a little misleading because when you look at a map that shows that places are steady, it may mean that they're simply posting day after day after day of 10,000 plus cases and deaths on the approach to, you know, 900 or potentially 1,000. There are still a serious number of hotspots around the country. We're not seeing as great of numbers as we we're once seeing in areas like Arizona and in Texas, but Florida is still reporting uh, daily increases on the plus side of 8,000. They are approaching 500,000 cases. California surpassing 500,000 cases. And Dr. Burks over the weekend uh, made mention of the fact that this is no longer the isolated incident that we saw in New York State. This is a widespread problem across the country, uh, and there are now areas that are at risk of seeing uh, big increases and flare-ups that did uh, fairly well early on in the outbreak. Uh, And this is a a growing problem now as we head into what is eventually going to become a winter season combined with the actual flu. Absolutely. Hey, we had our first uh, official weekend in the city of Calgary with a mandatory mask bylaw in effect. And I'm wondering if you have any news of increased mask usage in the USA or does it seem to be city by city and state to state at this point still? So there are there are more than 30 states that have a mask mandate in place. Uh, you know, the, the Washington, D.C. area, if you're outside of your house and you're over the age of five years old, a mask has to be on. It's a similar situation in parts of Maryland as well. And we're seeing that be put in place across the country. There are more Republican governors uh, that are actually uh, kind of more in favor of seeing face masks. You know, it's, it's, it's a little too late for some of these states, uh, but there is an embrace to face coverings, and we're also even seeing that from the president. He may not wear one when he's out in public uh, at his campaign rallies or at the stops that he makes, but a a Trump campaign email came out last night uh, that was saying, look, wearing a mask is patriotic. You might not like doing it, but it is going to slow the spread, so we're actually starting to see uh, kind of an acceptance of what health experts have been saying for months now by top levels of the government in the U.S., uh, let's, let's talk about the election uh, for a moment here, and let's talk about, again, the, the big rattle and the big, uh, you know, announcement that we, we should not move forward with the election, the mail-in ballots. What do we know about mail-in ballots? Is uh, the president, is it all rhetoric when he says that we, we cannot have an election like this, it is not reliable? What do we know about the reliability of a mail-in ballot? Well, I mean, look, mail-in ballots have been used for decades in the United States in terms of absentee ballots where Mm -hmm. you cast your ballot because you don't live in a certain state or if you're an active military member who's going to be overseas. And look, the president himself votes by mail as an absentee ballot uh, at one point when he was a New York resident and now in Florida since he has moved his house uh, down to the Sunshine State. This is not something that is kind of new to the country. There are four or five states that actively use mail-in balloting uh, as a general rule when it comes to midterm and and elections, the president is really kind of locked into these conspiracies that there are, uh, you know, opportunities for voter fraud and opportunities for foreign influence uh, to try and get their hands inside of these ballots and, you know, stuff ballot boxes and create fraudulent ballots. It's simply a non-starter in the U.S. You have, you know, a couple of hundred cases of potential fraud uh, over every couple of million mail-in ballots that come in. So this is the president really just fearful uh, that this could potentially lead to, A, a non-call on election 
election night where you're going to have to wait, you know, potentially a couple of days or a couple of weeks to get all the mail-in ballots uh, ready. But also mail-in ballots oftentimes benefit the Democratic Party more so than the Republican Party. So this is simply a fear uh, that there could be more uh, votes cast for the Democrats. Okay, time to look in the crystal ball, Reggie. Come November, with the numbers of COVID still rising, with some questions about a mail-in ballot-based uh, election, are we going to have an election in the U.S. Uh, come November? We will have an election in the U.S. in November. The president does not have the authority to be able to cancel or delay an election. Congress is the one that sets the date for that. Uh, and the Constitution ends the presidency on January 20th, whether or not there is a clear winner or not. So there's going to be an election. There's going to be uh, an end date for either President Donald Trump's term or his time in office uh, in in, in, uh, the, uh, in uh, the end of January. But until that point, you know, this is simply going to be the president's opportunity to dive into conspiracy theories and drum up fear amongst his supporters. And last but not least, uh, we're hearing that the search continues for Donald Trump's tax returns coming out of Manhattan. And uh, one lawyer really wanted to find out eight years of, of backlog tax info for the president. Yeah, this kind of expands on uh, the initial investigation that looked at the president's taxes uh, to try and see whether or not there was verified information about hush money payments for two women alleged to have had affairs with Donald Trump. We now know that uh, the Southern District of New York is actually looking into potential uh, insurance and bank fraud uh, by the Trump organization. Uh, and they're uh, looking to see if they can get these uh, kind of extensive tax returns to dig deeper into what President Trump's financial ties may be to both internal and external uh, uh, banking and insurance corporations around the world. This potentially could be more reasons why the president is really fighting back on releasing those tax returns, bringing it back to a lower court, saying that these uh, kind of reaches are overbroad uh, at the least. Uh, we know that this is going to continue through the courts, but likely not be settled anytime before the election. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Reggie. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. Hey, coming up in a couple minutes, we talked a lot about masks, the first full weekend of mask wearing in the city of Calgary. Haven't covered a lot of ground when it comes to that first full weekend of sports. What did you think? Did you catch some of the Calgary Flames hockey or maybe one of your other favorite teams? Of course, it's Calgary, but other favorite teams uh, through the weekend. Let us know what you thought of the new look sports, at least for the time being. Send us a text anytime at 403-974-8255. Right now, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Main Street's highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. A nice smooth drive out there this morning. If you're on Stony Trail, about a 15-minute drive from Deerfoot over to 16th Avenue Northeast. Highway 2 southbound from Airdrie, about 20 minutes from Yankee Valley Boulevard down to Memorial Drive. Coming in from Cochrane, about a 35-minute drive on Highway 1A down Crowchild to Glenmore Trail. And northbound on McLeod Trail, 20 minutes from Highway 22X to 17th Avenue downtown. Demand is rising. There is an immediate need for blood. Over 40,000 appointments to be filled across Canada this month. Appointments are required. Book now at blood.ca. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Phil Jansen. Nine on the morning news. Well, uh, desperate for a better solution to schooling. Parents have started organizing what is called pandemic pods or homeschooling pods for the fall in which groups of three to ten students learn together in homes under the watch of the children's parents, or a hired teacher. With more details, we're joined by Jessica Calarco, a PhD, a sociologist who studies educational inequality at Indiana University. Good morning to you, Jessica. Good morning, Andrew. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for joining us. Okay, the term pandemic pods, it sounds very futuristic. So I'm wondering, where did it come from? Did something like this, you know, exist even months or even a year ago? Sure. I mean, certainly something, homeschooling has been around for a long time uh, as an alternative to traditional public schools or a supplement in some cases to traditional public schools. Uh, but I think the the part of it that is, that, and, and in some cases, homeschool parents have used co-ops as a way to lessen some of the burden of being the one to provide full-time instruction for their kids. But the term pod specifically, I really started around this pandemic in terms of a way to give people and especially kids access to social interaction during a time when they're being deprived of that uh, by schools and other activities being closed. And so certainly the term pandemic pod is being used to talk about a whole range of different arrangements, as you were alluding in your intro, everything from essentially forming a micro school where the kids are pulled out of public schooling and families hire a private teacher or a private tutor to provide all of the instruction to something that works more like a childcare co-op where the kids are doing online instruction, maybe through their public school, but then different families are rotating who watches the kids during during the day. And so I think it's important to dis- disentangle those different ways that the term is being used when we're talking about what the implications might be. So I guess it's it's not a, certainly not a one size fits all when you say pandemic pod. No, not at all. And I think there's huge variations in terms of who is participating and how much money is involved in terms of whether uh, someone is being brought in from the outside and paid as a full-time teacher or a part-time childcare provider um, or whether parents are doing the work themselves. Obviously, it's actually good for the economy because, like you say, it maybe frees up parents who can re-enter the workforce. You mentioned it could rotate, uh, so there's the win there. Keeping the kids maybe out of uh, you know area that uh, you're fearful of as a parent, putting them back in school. But how do I know my student would not just you know survive, but maybe thrive in a situation like this? Because it's certainly different than the 30 kid classroom. I mean, certainly the, the research tells us that kids need hands-on support with learning. In my own research on homework, I found that even when schools are operating normally, especially elementary-aged kids, need a parent with them uh, to be able to succeed in doing normal homework assignments. And now if all work is being done from home, uh, kids who have a high level of support, either from a parent or from an outside person, are going to be able to focus better, are going to be able to get that work done more correctly and, and with um, a higher level of accuracy and, and with less effort and, and less stress probably involved. I think the concern then becomes which families are able to provide that kind of support, either as an individual family without a pod involved, having a stay-at-home parent who can mm-hmm. be that sort of full-time support person or have the resources to be able to form a pod and or be able to hire an outside person, a teacher or a tutor, to provide that kind of support or even supplement on top of that support. Certainly, there's a lot of parents who are talking about not just hiring someone or forming a pod as a way to support students mm-hmm. during online instruction, but to supplement it as well. And I think that's where the big concerns about equity come in. Yeah. If families are saying, I'm not satisfied with the quality of online instruction that I'm getting from my local public schools, and they're saying, I want to hire someone or I want to provide supplemental instruction, supplemental activities, that's where the potentially biggest inequalities are going to come from uh, with this movement toward pandemic pause. So when you say inequalities also, it could, if, if there was a high enough percentage within one school district that does this, you know, the, uh, the budgets could really take a hit from some of these, uh, not just uh, districts, but schools themselves. Absolutely. And that's another big difference with these pods. Some families are keeping their kids enrolled in public schooling, often through an online option. But in many cases, parents are 
pulling their kids out of public schools and instead forming essentially small private schools for themselves and their friends. And that's where we come up with the, the biggest challenges for public schooling as a whole in that dollars follow students. And if students are not enrolled, the students who are left behind in those public schools who are still receiving public instruction, who are disproportionately going to be students from lower income families, students of color, students whose families don't have the uh, logistical capacity or the resources to be able to, to homeschool or to pod school instead, are going to have fewer resources to go around uh, in terms of supporting them in the public school system. It's got to be an interesting dynamic and a lot of research and maybe a lot of conversations with parents within your uh, you know, neighborhood or within the same school or classroom as your child because I think there has to be a, a real distinction between me hovering over my grade 9 student saying, oh, did you do that homework assignment that came down, like kind of supervising versus actually teaching. And I think that that, that might be something you have to delve into, that, that you're, you are not a homeschooler when you're making sure that your teen or preteen is just doing the work that was sent by the school. Absolutely. I think that's kind of the distinction that I that I like to make between supporting and supplementing mm-hmm. in the sense that it's, it's very reasonable for families to want to support their kids with at-home learning. And if you have parents at home who are trying to do full-time work um, and trying to have their kids be learning at home at the same time, that is incredibly challenging. I have a daughter who's going into first grade this year, and it is incredibly challenging to work from home and also support her with school. Um, and so that's where many working families especially are turning to pods and especially to hiring a, a private uh, tutor or a childcare provider to be that support person um, that can be that kind of checking in, making sure that they're getting logged on, making sure that they're getting the work done. So certainly not all families are able to provide that. Uh, I think where it becomes even more problematic is if you have families that are hiring someone to go above and beyond or trying to go above and beyond themselves. And I would argue that really that's potentially detrimental to kids right now. Kids right now are under so much stress. Uh, in terms of dealing with this pandemic, which is almost certainly the most kind of upsetting and and life-upsetting experience that they've had in their lives. And to put on top of that the expectation to do even more academics, to uh, require them to be doing more than what is required uh, by the public schools right now seems potentially problematic for kids' mental health uh, as well. Jessica, what do you say to, you know, to the argument that with three people in a pod or three kids, if not maybe eight or nine, that they don't get that socialization, that they'll be missing out on what they would have been in a, a regular classroom situation? I mean, certainly there are sacrifices right now, that there are going to be trade-offs uh, no matter what option we choose. If we physically send kids back to school, there's a higher risk of kids getting sick, of teachers getting sick, of families and staff members getting sick. Certainly smaller pods may not give kids the level of structure, the level of interaction, the level of socialization that they would be used to under a normal school environment. But I would argue that parents have to consider the trade-offs, just as they do with the the equity of the choices that they're making. Do they hire someone to provide support or do they try to find a co-op to provide at home? There's trade-offs with respect to equity and effort. And the same thing is true with, in terms of the number of people in a pod or in a classroom. There's trade-offs with respect to safety and socialization. I think there's no perfect option for parents right now, and parents have to decide which trade-offs they're most comfortable with. And I think the legislators can, can help parents by providing more guidance on which types of options are available, by providing financial support to families uh, to make some of these options more accessible to families that otherwise wouldn't have them at their disposal. Jessica, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. It's good to talk with you.
That is Jessica Calarco, Ph.D., a sociologist who studies educational inequality at Indiana University. 717, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, a mix of unique single-family homes, townhomes, and condos. delays on southbound Deerfoot around 16th Avenue. Looks like those cleared up and it's moving very smoothly now. Eastbound Highway 1 in the northwest approaching Stony Trail. There are rolling uh, lane closures through the area while crews set out some pylons. That should be lasting until about 7.45 this morning. And on westbound Glenmore Trail, there are some various lane closures between Richard Road and Sarcy that could add some delays to your commute as we move into the morning rush hour. Popeye's Hot Honey Chicken is here. Two pieces of Popeye's Chicken drizzled with spicy sweet hot honey sauce and served to the regular side in biscuit for just $6.99. From the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Bill Jensen. Seven or eight nineteen, <laughs> yeah, we're 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 ahead. We're eight nineteen on the morning news. Uh, thank you for taking the time to listen on a Tuesday morning. Kind of feels like a Monday, following a weekend where we well had the first ever full weekend of the mandatory mask bylaw went into effect on Saturday, August first. Maybe you've had a mask for months, and maybe you've been wearing it diligently. Maybe you've been wearing it sparingly, but yes, now mandatory for public facilities and transit. Kate Choi from the city's Community Standards Department joins us this morning to discuss our response to the city's new mandatory mask bylaw after its first weekend. Good morning to you, Kay. Kay Choi. Yes. Oh, there you are. Good. I just had a technical glitch for a second there. I'm wondering, is there a way to measure it? Or I can start with your personal opinion if you were out and about. What did you think from what you saw with the mandatory mask bylaw first weekend? I'm so pleased. Uh, we observed, I observed personally, a significant increase in people entering stores and in public premises wearing face coverings this weekend. This does not come as a surprise to me as overall Calgarians are respectful of bylaws. Respectful of bylaws and we're hearing that, uh, you know, businesses, uh, for the most part, yes, if they're like, for example, a grocery store, all employees will be wearing masks because it's in public. And uh, the only real uh, other change would be putting a, a sign on the door for these businesses. Is that right? Right. And so what I can tell you is that we've only had seven reports of businesses that did not have bylaw signage and entranceways that was reported to the city over the weekend. This is great because it gives our peace officers an opportunity to follow up with these business owners and operators and ask if there's any way that we can support them going forward. So is this a case that, you know, you, you mentioned those seven, would these have been reported or would these be bylaw officers, you know, uh, doing due diligence and driving around town? We were driving around town doing due due diligence this weekend. However, our primary focus this weekend was on education. So the seven businesses that were reported were by citizens who um, called 311 and advised us of um, the businesses not having the proper signage. Okay, so so when it comes to the education portion, you mentioned particularly at the beginning, and I'm hearing six weeks. Is is that the time frame that this uh, bylaw is in effect until at least? That's right. Okay. So right now, at minimum, uh, we're going to be um, reporting back to council the first or second week of September with any sort of recommendations or even possibly a recommendation to repeal the bylaw, unless, unless of course, city council decides uh, prior to September the 14th that they want to have an emergency meeting with regards to this. Okay, so to the point of, uh, you know, the uh, bylaw officers did notice 
seven businesses or was brought to their attention as well of uh, businesses without the signs. Can we assume that if you're in the grocery store, there could be a chance that bylaw officers might just be popping in? You know, it's it's part of our everyday uh, business okay. where we are in the community. We are, you know, of course, in the grocery stores. And what we want to do is we want to be handing out uh, face coverings rather than tickets. Okay, good stuff. Well, I'm glad, uh, you know, you like what you see because that's uh, your job. And if we can keep it going, uh, that's not a bad thing. And only six weeks in the grand scheme of things. I, I like to think that's a short time. I think so, too. I think it's a minor inconvenience considering that we are going to be coming together as a community and we're going to be better together in this fight against COVID-19 with face coverings. Good stuff. Thank you very much for your time, Kay. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. You too. That's Kay Choi, the City of Calgary, Department of Community Standards. Doctor, doctor, give me the news I got. 719 on the morning news. You're at a party, and there's around 20 children ages 3 to 7 years old. The noise is deafening. The candy bowls are empty. Screams of joy fill the air as parents marvel at their offspring's sugar-induced bedlam. We've all heard that sugar makes children hyperactive, but is it in fact science or an old mother's tale? We're joined now by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician, a sweet topic this week, Dr. J, and uh, you got to give it to us because as a parent, to me, it seems like the kids are amped up and uh, you know what? It does make them hyper. So what do you say about this? Well, what do I say? That's my observation also, having kids, having grandkids and watching, but the science does not bear it out. And this has happened. So the biggest science happened in the 70s and 80s, and then there was another flurry in the 90s. Uh, and then in 2017-18, there was a whole other flurry of science, and none has truly backed up the statement that sugar truly makes kids hyperactive. So, so, so what is it then? You know, I, in the lead-up, <laughs> I talked about that setting where maybe kids are in a, in a party setting. Is it is it something that they associated with a fun time or... Because yes, not physiologically. Perhaps, perhaps this is it, and that that may be what what we're seeing. If you reward kids with anything in a party setting, they're all hyper, uh, whether they had sugar or didn't have sugar. Now, what do we generally have at parties? Sugary things. So mm-hmm. maybe that's the connection in that kind of setting uh, where you have cake, and that uh, the kids are all amped up anyway, <laughs> and the cake uh, is just part of the whole story, and maybe isn't the cause of it. It's all there. But it's sure interesting that the science doesn't bear this up repeatedly. And there's a study, like they actually uh, tested the kids on uh, different types of whether or not it's full sugar or sweetener, and uh, the, the results are there. The, the science is there. Yeah, they, they looked at it uh, in many devious ways, um, like giving uh, parents placebo versus uh, sugar versus uh, sugar supplements, uh, substitutes, uh, but not telling them what they were, and they had to observe they even had um, cases of groups of kids where the parents were told their kids were given a very high sugar uh, meal uh, versus were given placebo, given nothing at all, and reversed it, didn't tell them what they got. And the observations were quite consistent that if you told the parents their kids were getting the high sugar, they noticed their kids were much more hyper. Or that's what their observation was, even though they weren't given any high sugar. So the question, is it our expectation that if we believe our kids are going to get hyper, they get hyper, or we treat them as if they're hyper? It's very interesting, uh, the science of that. 
What about, you know, those parents who, who don't want their kids to have too much sugar? Is an artificial sweetener, is that safe for, for the younger set? Uh, everything in moderation. Okay. Uh, if anything, the, what the studies found is that kids are having too much sugar, period. Uh, the sugar substitutes, there's always, it's very controversial. You know, is one okay? The others are not okay. I think in moderation, there's probably not a major issue with any of them. Uh, if they're excessive, and uh, you know, there are uh, maybe m- more so in adults than kids, but some adults will drink, you know, four liters of diet pop a day. That's a lot of artificial sweetener, and perhaps if you're getting into that kind of volume, it's not not good. But I think small amounts are totally acceptable. And again, the other observation, the high sugar, uh, there is a subset, and they have found, the science has pointed that kids, particularly with severe ADHD, might be aggravated by a high sugar diet, a high fat diet, do much better on a a lower carbs, um, uh, like higher vegetable, higher fruits, healthier, essentially healthier diet. They probably do do better, more stable than on an unhealthy diet. So that is a subset mm-hmm. that uh, probably is true. There probably is some science in that grouping. Very interesting study. Thank you very much uh, for your time this morning, Dr. J. Okay, you betcha. That is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician.